This is Global Crisis Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and current ABC News National Defense and Security Analyst Mick Mulroy joins the Media Mavens podcast for a live monthly segment to discuss crucial world events. And here is the host of Global Crisis Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and your host for Media Mavens. We're here with our monthly segment, Global Crisis Watch, with our guest and co-host, so to speak, Mick Mulroy, who is National Security Analyst, National Security and Defense for ABC News and former paramilitary operations officer with the CIA. Mick, thank you so much for joining our segment Pleasure to be here, Sarah. <laughs> it's a mouthful. You have such an impressive background, but we're excited to um, do these monthly segments of what's going on in the world and excited you're going to be here to run these segments with us on what's moving and what's going on in the world. We need to talk to you right now about the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. I know, if I'm not mistaken, you are dealing with that from a conflict resolution kind of viewpoint, because you're also the co-founder of the Lobel Institute, which is all about conflict resolution and security. And, and I know you've been doing a lot of media interviews. You've been on the phone with these guys in the Middle East. I, I kind of wanted to start with, where did all of this start? How do we get to this point? Because the whole thing with Israelis is they want peace. They, you know, we thought everything was kind of peaceful, a little bumpy at times, but this is really, I don't want to say gone out of hand, but it's gone full blown. And where... When did this start and how are you guys dealing with this right now? Yeah, Sarah. So obviously this, this, this issue has been going on for millennia, but we'll speed it up to the, the current crisis, right? So, uh, and, and I don't mean to make light, light of that. It's been, it's been a significant effort over the whole lifetime uh, of the state of Israel uh, through many uh, presidential administrations to try to come up with some kind of uh, peace plan that would stop this uh, horrendous violence. The current a crisis uh, essentially started as a con, uh, a con uh, combination of several things. So we had uh, six Palestinian families that were, uh, the decision was made to evict them off of their property in East Jerusalem, which is contested. Um, that created a situation where there was a lot of protests with the Palestinians. Uh, that coincided with a significant Muslim holiday and a national day for Israel uh, which was uh, the celebration of when the Israelis liberated in their in their minds uh, East Jerusalem from Jordan. So obviously a pressure point against the Palestinians. And um, things kind of spiraled out of control with protests turns to riots, turns to response from Israeli security. And then we started seeing a significant amount of rockets being fired from uh, Gaza uh, into uh, border cities uh, in Israel, and then into a major city in Tel Aviv, which is not very common. And then we saw the response, of course, uh, of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to that rocket attack uh, in the form of airstrikes, artillery barrages, etc. It's just amazing. I mean, it's not amazing. It's sad how quickly this has escalated as well. I mean, how is the military handling all of this over there? So from the Israeli, and you know, this is this is my analysis. I don't know, but the Israeli military, um, I, I certainly don't think they look forward to this. But when they have all these uh, missiles coming at them, they do take the opportunity to try to reduce as much as they can 
the level of missiles and the capabilities of groups like uh, Hamas, which is the controlling entity in Gaza. So they have been fairly aggressive, I would say, uh, when seeking out command and control targets, the actual rocket uh, launch mechanisms, and then the, the um, uh, tunnels in which Hamas both stores munitions and then moves around in, in Gaza. They've been very aggressive in striking those. Uh, the Iron Dome, uh, I know we'll get into, but has been pretty effective, but it can only take so much before it gets, uh, starts getting overwhelmed. With, now, uh, now I know you said, you know, Hamas is a controlling organization in Gaza, but, and we talked a little bit earlier about this, that Hamas is now, or has been a designated terrorist organization. I mean, are the Israelis and the military, you guys, I mean, say you guys, handling this a little bit differently than like say 10 years ago, 15 years ago in the past with conflict because they're an official terrorist group as we now view them or are they handling this the same, hoping for a better resolution? Or is, I mean, where is the difference of how this is being handled now compared to in the past? So in the past, we dealt predominantly with the Palestinian uh, uh, authority, right? And Abbas. Uh, and before, you know, we can, we'll keep it to somewhat recent times. Um, they control uh, other areas of the Palestinian territory. Hamas ended up in control. Uh, well, so they've controlled West Bank. Hamas ended up in, in control of Gaza. So in, in Hamas is about a 30,000 man militia who's, who's, who now governs, but it's primarily a, a militia um, by their standards, by uh, the U.S. State Department, they're a terrorist organization. And I can't say, and we can get into proportionality, but um, under the law of armed conflict, if you launch a rocket toward a civilian population unaimed, that's a war crime by any definition. And so I think we're up to over 3,000 of these rockets has been launched uh, at these, these territorial um, uh, cities in, inside Israel, everyone's a war crime. So that's unacceptable. And that's why I think you're seeing almost everybody say, Israel has a right to defend themselves. That's totally unacceptable. It's a war crime. Uh, but to your point, um, they are a terrorist organization. So that makes it extraordinarily different uh, to, than talking to a, a nation state, which has more responsibility and quite frankly, more repercussions of the international community. Because you're a terrorist organization, you essentially exist to cause a conflict to try to push for your political gains. So this is something, um, you know, Speaking as an analyst, I think they would have wanted to create uh, because that's what terrorist organizations do. So we're, we have a uh, substantial push right now from the international community, which I totally agree with, to try to end the violence. But it's going to be difficult uh, because uh, Hamas um, doesn't necessarily think that's a good idea. I mean, they, uh, these terrorists, sorry, to these terrorist organizations, they always have an agenda. And like, and I know we have a lot to cover, a lot of ground here to unpack, Joe, but like, I, since we're on the Hamas subject, and, you know, and I, I, mean, I knew a little bit about this, so correct me, I know you're going to correct me anyways on this, Mick. I know, was it true or fact that the Israeli initiated a false media alert or statement to get the Hamas in the tunnels in order to um, shoot or fire them up? and um, bomb them, is that accurate statement or is there more to it? And that was just the taken off context part that we saw in the press. So you're right, Sarah, that's the accusation. So I don't know if that was actually the intent of releasing that statement. But the accusation was that the IDF spokesperson um, released a statement saying there was going to be a ground offensive. Um, the Hamas militants went into the tunnels based on that statement and then it made it 
uh, more of a target for Israel to to uh, strike the target and strike the tunnels because it's uh, it's full of militia fighters. So, um, I mean, from a military deception, if that was their intent, I mean, uh, that that's uh, pretty clever. Uh, but from a PR perspective, and you know, can only, how many times can you tell a press something uh, false uh, before they stop listening to you? It might be once. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. So that, those are the issues that are being discussed around the on the incident you're talking about. But I, you know, I don't know. It's no, nobody's I, nobody knows right now. Yeah, I just think it's happened. difficult because Hamas is a, you know, now a, a terrorist organization. So we have that. We have Israel mm -hmm. who is defending themselves. Um, the, you know, it, the, the, it, it's hard to tell. Like when this whole thing's over, how do you end it? Because everybody is pretty much war crimes. They're pointing fingers. Well, it's a war crime because if Israeli is right in what they're doing, they are perfect, um, protecting themselves. But at the same time, if they're not, then there is human life and war crimes there. If you flip to the other side of the fence, Hamas is a terrorist organization with an agenda. And I would think it'd be difficult on conflict resolution because you don't know where the truth, truth lies always somewhere in the middle, but you can't penalize one and not the other because that just creates more rife and conflict. Yeah, I agree. You really have to look at what both sides are doing and judge them based on that. So we already talked about the barrage of rockets. Uh, that's that it is what it is. The issue uh, on the Israeli side is really comes down to proportionality. So um, there was an incident where they targeted and brought down around a 12 story building that um, they claim they had intelligence that uh, Hamas's intelligence sector was in. Uh, if that's true, then Hamas essentially made that building a military target, a valid one under the law of armed conflict. Um, but you'd have to see the intel that the Israelis have to be able to determine if that's correct, because um, that goes to whether it's a valid military target or not. Also, um, proportionality. So you could have a valid military target, but did you need to take the entire building down and as you already mentioned, Sarah, um, there's been a lot of innocent civilians killed mm. in Gaza. It's a very, very densely populated area. And over 200 uh, civilians have been killed, over 60 of them were children. Uh, that's just, that should be unacceptable to everybody. But I would say, you know, the question is, how do we get them to stop? And then we have to look at what both sides did and judge them for their own actions. That's I interesting. Joe, yeah. you had a question here. Yeah, I would just like to know uh, on the, the Biden uh, administration, I think, you know, they really don't have a lot of power into, you know, they can say they want a, a ceasefire, but then when it comes down to what Israel and both Hamas want, you know, I know that right now that uh, Hamas is asking for two conditions to, for them not to, uh, for Israel not to uh, go into the Alaska, Alaska, I believe it's compound, and they want to stop the forced uh, evacuations of the Palestinian residents in the uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, I believe. I mean, other than just saying we want you to cease fire, I really don't see any power the U.S. can really hold to force this, uh, force the issue at hand. But just, just to add to this, Mick, for your answer, I, I saw this on a news feed somewhere that these six families did petition, am I correct, in court to stay and not be pushed out. But I, I don't know if there's any resolution on that either, which is where I think this whole thing escalated from is that correct that's correct and, and you're right joe there was there is a the al-aqsa mosque is one of the most uh, holy sites for islam uh period and of course it's right next to one of the most holy sites for 
Judaism, and then one night next to the most holy site for Christianity, right? And the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in the the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, the neighborhood you referenced is East Jerusalem, and the way the Palestinians look at this is, you know, should they have a their own state? You know, you hear the two state solution when the Palestinians actually have a state. They want East Jerusalem to be their capital, right? Just like the Israelis want Jerusalem to be their capital. Um, the Palestinians would like to see East Jerusalem be their capital. So that's why it's so significant. Even if it's six families, if you remove six Palestinian families and it gets re replaced by non-Palestinian, essentially Israeli, that could shift the power dynamics when it comes to uh, the potential future control of East Jerusalem. So that's why it is very uh, very significant. Is that was uh, that is that was that the intent? I mean, I'm assuming that was the intent of this whole thing to get them out, so the Israelis could assume residency there, so the powers shift to them to make Jerusalem their capital. So they would argue. Uh, well, the Palestinians would make your argument. That's the whole point of trying to evict these these six families. The Israelis say it's more about land dispute, property dispute. I'll let your um, your listeners uh, figure that out. But th th that's the issue. Is is um, it does have an effect on who eventually controls East Jerusalem. So I think that that is a fair statement. What about the Biden administration and the, the, the fact that the U.S. really doesn't have any power in this? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that uh, happened under the previous administration is what's called the Abraham Accords, mm. which was an agreement between Israel and UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, uh, basically to normalize relations between those countries, which have been ever since the formation of the state of Israel uh, in some kind of conflict, uh, not actual, uh, not always, you know, direct military conflict, but not normal uh, relations. It's a positive thing for the stability of the region, for any agreement that, that stabilizes and then makes the relationships more normal. So I certainly think that they were positive. The problem, uh, if there was a problem, I think there was, is they didn't address the Palestinians in the Abraham Accords at all. So um, for those that thought that didn't need to be addressed, that we could just kind of move past it, I think we've emphatically got our answer, that the answer is no. Um, I personally think that the two-state solution is the only answer because the one-state solution is what we're seeing right now. Uh, so President Biden has always been, uh, I think, uh, in my mind, uh, a strong, staunch supporter of Israel. And he's said many times uh, that Israel has a right to defend itself. Certainly the United States uh, would have been, you know, defending ourselves. Uh, but I do think we've seen him sign on to the petition from the Senate. I don't know how many senators, last time I checked, it was around 28 senators, uh, really calling uh, Israel uh, to look for every opportunity to off ramp. And I think you're seeing the president say more and more to that uh, effect. Uh, the question, you know, as we talked about Joe before this, is is uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, going to listen to that? That's, that's to be determined. Yeah, that's interesting. And then when it comes down to I'd like to know where are the where are the weapons for Hamas and the uh, Islamic Jihad coming in from? I mean, do we have any kind of information saying, you know, who is supplying them? Is it is it Iran? Is it Iraq? Is it Russia? Where are these weapons coming from? So predominantly Iran. Iran uh, basically uses uh, proxy warfare, which is creating another entity and then supplying them to do the fighting so you don't get direct attribution. That's how I'm divining proxy warfare. They do that to a certain extent in Yemen uh, with this group called the Houthis, 
uh, and they do it um, in uh, Lebanon, in a group called uh, Le uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, and Hamas, and then there's other groups in Syria. So that's why we're seeing, I think, more missiles than we've seen in the past get launched, why they're traveling farther distance, like say hitting Tel Aviv, and in some cases are more accurate. There, these these weapon systems are being funded by uh, pretty substantial nation state in the region, and that's Iran. How, let's talk a bit about how the Iron Dome works. Can you give us some insight on that from what you've been talking about and looking at? Yeah, so the Iron Dome was developed uh, by Israel in 2011, I believe. And it is a system that uses you know, radar and then uh, a projectile to detect when something's launched, determine its trajectory, and then get this projectile in front of it uh, and then explode so that it creates a, a larger block, if you will, to the incoming round. It's, a, it's pretty impressive. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think you've seen a lot in the news talking about it. Uh, it has a 90% success rate. Uh, the problem is, you know, if you shoot 100 missiles at some uh, somebody, you're going to get one through, right? Is it, uh, but if you start shooting 10,000 missiles at somebody, you're going to get a lot of missiles that land, even with the 90% success rate. So it is, it is, uh, it is an impressive system, um, but it's not, it's not foolproof, and that's what we're seeing because I think we've seen about 12 is the last count. I was, uh, I'm, mm -hmm. uh, Israelis have been killed, and maybe two or three children. Um, I don't think you should say, oh, well, only this many Israelis died because they have this really effective system. Um, you know, we don't want to lose, we don't have any incident civilians killed in this, in this conflict. Uh, and the, uh, the fact that the Iron Dome is, is uh, impressive is, you know, I mean, it's impressive. That's good. And certainly we would use the same level of sophistication if we had the opportunity. Well, I mean, there's never 100% accuracy because you're seeing them knock these missiles down in the air. I mean, they've got, you know, the... Um, photos we've seen in the reports them it is impressive the israelis have always been very tech savvy more than a lot of other countries in general to lean and use technology um they've been very diligent about it i'm going to make a bad assumption here probably but is a lot of their advancements in the technology the reason but why this iron dome them it, it is what it is it's working the way it is because i mean there's no good thing it's never good to have casualties of war and i know this is another issue that's going to probably pop up sooner or later. But I just figured they would probably have the upper hand over the Palestinians and Hamas because they are more tech savvy. Do you think that's going to play out and become evident over time? Or does it not make a difference right now? So technological advancement in warfare has always been a significant advantage. And I think that maybe even it's, it's happening at an exponential rate where, you know, you're going to start seeing artificial intelligence and all these other types of uh, things that are being additive to uh, weapon systems that are really advancing them. I mean, and I, I agree with you, Sarah, the Israelis have proven their technological prowess. Oftentimes they invite, th they invent things wholesale and sometimes they take things that's already on the market and they just make it better. Right. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty smart. Um, they have, uh, you know, a pretty robust economy uh, for the Middle East. And I think it's, uh, I think we all know that and you go there. Uh, in fact, uh, my, a good friend of mine, Mark uh, Polymeropoulos, who is a, also a retired CIA, wrote an article today, I would suggest to your audience if it, um, about uh, his relationship with both the Palestinians and the Israelis. So he comes at it from a, a, a pretty sophisticated, obviously very uh, experienced perspective, but he also has a personal um, take because he spent so much time uh, with both. I've spent a lot of time with Israelis, not so much time with the Palestinians. But uh, to your point, um, they have a very sophisticated 
technological sector. We have a robust economy. And quite frankly, the U.S. government uh, supports them a great deal with uh, military and just uh, uh, funding. So they have, they have an advantage on all those fronts. I'd like to get into a little history about this now. Uh, it seems, I mean, it's been over, I would say, a century since um, this actually has begun because I think it became uh, when in 1917, I believe, when Arthur, Ar- was it Arthur or Alfred Balfour uh, came up with a declaration and, and the English government supported it, saying that we want to give a home to Israelis in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And then it really kicked off in 1948 when um, they decided to start moving more um, Israelis back into the Palestinian area and, and turning their own state in. How do you fight history when it when it comes up? So, I mean, this has been going on for over 100 years. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Joe. I mean, the Balfour agreement, it, you, you laid it out exactly as the way I understand it. Uh, what I've been told by, but I think people, quite frankly, that are more familiar with the diplomatic side of this than I was, because I was on the military side, um, has been, you know, as it as, when it started, 1948, they were talking about uh, potential for a 50-50 split between Arabs and and, and uh, Jews, right? In, when it came to this, it's it seems like every iteration of the peace efforts, uh, the Palestinians have gotten less and less of an offer, right? So it's, it would seem that it, in, in many ways, it's a leadership issue where, you know, if you hold out for what you consider the best, you might actually end up regressing to a point where you're getting, now, now they're even talking about whether it should be even the second state, right? So um, I would hope that the Palestinian leadership, um, that their people deserve uh, to live in peace. And the, the leadership on both sides, Israeli too, but certainly the Palestinians uh, are responsible for that, primarily responsible for that. So to be able to come to a, uh, an international agreement, certainly agreement with, with Israel itself, to have a state that's functional, that you know has a representation that looks after the people from starting from, like you described, 1948, where they were actually talking about uh, quite, a, quite a bit more that the Palestinians would have got to right. Now what we're talking about is, you know, a lot of the in Gaza, um, the place is being reduced to rubble. So I hope, and I think everybody agrees with this, so I don't think it's a controversial statement. We can get to a point where we have a ceasefire, but we don't just wait for the next, uh, you know, intifada, the next, uh, the next uh, crisis that we actually sit down and try to come up with something that is uh, reasonable to both sides and helps prevent this from happening again. And we've tried this before. I mean, Jimmy Carter thought he had the solution and for some reason that failed. Yes. I mean, the, so many, so many presidents have, you know, good faith, right? I mean, that's yeah. what I'm, that's what I'm advocating for them to do again. So, I mean, you have to be realistic. It doesn't mean, I mean, you can't just go in there thinking, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're absolutely sure we're going to get it right this time, but at least if they're talking, hopefully they won't be, you know, lobbing rockets and, and level of buildings. So uh, I think we have to have um, a full, you know, realization of which, there are the possible, but I also don't think we should just throw up our hands and ignore the issue uh, till next time. And they have the most interest in doing this. The U.S. can only help facilitate uh, a willing partner uh, and a willing or two willing partners in the agreement. It can't be imposed necessarily by the United States. I have a question for you, Mick. I mean, 
you know, the Israelis have always been known to be the friendly. They just want peace, be left alone. Kind of sects are situated in the Middle East, and that strip of land is what's creating all these deaths and casualties and um, everything. But do you foresee any resolution? Because Hamas is a terrorist group. We all know how terrorist groups work. They're, they're not done until they're done. You know, there's no there there on that. Do you see a resolution coming out of this? Because at the end of the day, like you guys said, they're fighting over nothing but rubble rocks and land there's no more life left there it's been an ongoing issue is this going to think will be res like the resolution of the conflict and the peace talks do you think we'll actually hit that milestone or do you think this is just going to be a declare so i mean one side's going to declare another full-out war where from a conflict resolution side at that point you got to step aside and let them sort it out on their own i mean how far do you think this is going to go so that i mean it's a very good question the it looks like uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to continue going with his offensive. I think he is looking at this as an opportunity to seriously degrade Hamas. And from a military perspective, you can you can make the case. Um, from say a diplomatic or even a international opinion, um, they can be countered to that. There's a growing pressure on him um, to seek a peaceful uh, solution to this. That's essentially, just stop the fighting. Um, and so he, he's going to make his own calculation. I certainly hope that when they do come up with a, a ceasefire, that there is an effort to actually address the issues of the Palestinian people. Because if you have a stateless population of this size uh, anywhere in the world, but certainly in the, in the political uh, tense area of the Middle East, um, it's going to keep coming back up. And I think that we, everybody has an interest, including Israel, uh, for this not to be the case, to not have, you know, and I think, you know, I mentioned the article that I just read of Marx before I came. He talks about, you know, when he was in Israel, he felt like he was in Southern California. I mean, it's just such a nice place and people have been there and know this. It's very comfortable, certainly to Americans. And then you go right across into other areas of the Middle East and well, it's not. And um, it's very difficult to have a situation of just dramatically different economic uh, conditions and just overall conditions. So, um, you know, I know I'm being repetitive on this, but I think it is in everybody's interest to see a, a ceasefire and to actually have good faith discussions on how we can avoid this in the future, which also empowers the people uh, in both Israel and uh, the Palestinians. If you look at this politically, everybody makes a difference when they're in office or in a power position of politics. And I feel like with history, every time we switch administration, somebody new comes in, everybody has their own agenda, what's important to them. And I don't know if the percentages, Joe could probably answer this better, 50%, 75% of everything the past person of power and head of state held and fought for kind of falls by the wayside. And it's almost like we are constantly starting the engines over and over again. So I don't know if that has a reason why for centuries this fight has been ongoing because as shifting of power happens, different of opinions, right, wrong or indifferent, and every, you know, ego-based, whatever it is, everybody has a different agenda. So they feel, I could do it. We got this. I mean, as Israel gets smarter with their technology, to me, the most powerful, scariest weapon isn't bringing in guns from Russia, Iran. It's the technology, it's the AI. It's that advanced technology to lean on that could decimate so many like from levels of human life to technology to everything you do is so tech-based. So I feel like the scariest part of this is how tech savvy you are, cyber wars, everything going on. 
But I also feel like, you know, there's all this work that goes into finding peace. But then is it an issue because is it really permanent or because as we turn the heads of states and power changes, are we back to the same thing all over again? I feel like historically, we see that a lot here in the United States and other parts of the world. Are you confident or from an analyst standpoint, I know it's not personal, mm -hmm. that we could finally quell this or it's just going to be temporary hoping the next guys you come in have the same DNA, the same vision, the same ethics, the same core of peace and, you know, sharing properties and having peace and living amongst others peacefully. I mean, do you see it going in that or do you see this is just another bandaid in an ongoing um, chaos over in the Middle East? So to your point, Sarah, that, you know, the United States, we have shifting political winds, right? We go from you know, President Obama, President Trump, uh, President Biden. Um, and although there has always been bipartisan support, say for Israel, because the United States was uh, key in actually establishing the, the nation, um, they do have a different perspective. So that does change. And it might not be that helpful to it, but the, the issues don't really change that much that are actually between the two. Uh, and of course, there's changing politicians over there. So I would hope that we could, and this, this could be really helpful for a lot of things, not just the Middle East peace process, because that just seems to be uh, something that everybody views in this capacity. But quite frankly, if we have, we have a national strategy in the United States, a national security strategy, a national defense strategy, it is imperative uh, that we do that in a bipartisan manner. Because if you don't, the strategy doesn't have long enough to actually see if it works before we switch it. And if we do it together and we get buy-in from you know, left, right, and center, um, then we'd have more of an ability to actually implement a coherent strategy. And it, I talk about this a lot because say China has, you know, there's, there's all sorts of references like the 100 year marathon. And they have, they have strategies to go up to like 50 years. Um, they have that benefit because they're basically a dictatorial ship of one party and, and a homogenous uh, political leadership. Uh, but it is a challenge because the United States shifts a lot. But it's really hard to have a strategy that works if you keep switching. So to your point in the Middle East, that is that would be an issue if they switch political leadership there a lot. But I think if we can come up with the principles that we know are most important to the people that are most involved, Israelis and Palestinians, come up with some kind of agreement that they can both have, maybe not even include the controversial ones, but just agree on what we can agree. And hopefully that would include an uh a state for the Palestinians, we could then get a lot of these Gulf countries who are wealthy, and I mentioned some of them, uh, to help build economic opportunities and infrastructure in Palestine. So it has the opportunity to be successful as a state. Um, it, you know, whether it'll be as wealthy as Israel, I think I don't think that's really uh, the measuring stick, but certainly better than off than it is now. And there's a lot of there's a lot of wealth, uh, you know, between Saudi Arabia and him. And it's a lot of the countries in the region that could really help this happen. Uh, I'm glad Sarah asked that thing about the uh, administrations changing. And I don't know if you've been asked this uh, in your role at ABC News, but Benjamin Netanyahu was heading out before this happened. I mean, I, I was I know that he was uh, told to form an, or have his opponent form a new government. Do you think right now ben, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is playing with ha house money with this uh, conflict right now? So that is certainly the political analyst position, uh, Joe. 
they have talked about this is actually benefit. And I don't know that I don't I don't do the political. Um, but as it relates to the military action, uh, and it happens in a lot of cases where when a nation goes into a conflict, they tend to rally around the flag. Whoever's standing there holding the flag, in this case, the prime minister, uh, tends to be benefited uh, by it. Um, so uh, I, I mean, this was obviously he, Prime, prime Minister Netanyahu wouldn't be able to do this unless he had his rockets launched at his city. So he certainly um, has a responsibility to defend his his people, as would uh, Benny Gantz, the, the probably the most likely, um, or at least was the most likely person that would would have been the prime minister, who also served as the uh, um, defense attaché uh, to us in the United States, so well known by people in the Pentagon. But we stay out of their politics. But to your point. Many, many analysts would say that this actually benefits um, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, one, because it gets him in a position where he's representing Israel and he's the defender uh, in chief and, uh, and at a time when people feel very vulnerable. And I know a lot of people, or I know, I know people live in Israel and they, they've been going in and out of bomb shelters now for over a week. So they do feel vulnerable. Okay. And, you know, I know we're out of time here, Mick, but, you know, I just got a kind of a two-part question here. I mean, you know, where is your overall parting shot on this whole situation real quickly? And then I want to talk to you for a minute or two before we wrap on the Lobo Institute, because I know you launched and that's the base of conflict resolution and where your partner, Eric, are coming from. So I want to kind of, you know, your parting shots, where do you feel this is going? How do you think it's going to wrap up soon? Do you think it's a longer play to find peace talks and agreements over there. And then let's kind of pivot for a quick minute or two into the Global Institute, which is what you created to handle these kind of global crises, given your extensive background in security and defense and everything. Yeah, supporting shots, I think you will see an increase, uh, unfortunately, in, in activity, military activities by the Israelis. They feel like this is a time where they can actually mitigate a legitimate threat to their country. Uh, and then hopefully we'll see uh, mounting pressure to cease the hostilities, and hopefully we can get to a place where it stops. And then, uh, and then I also I often say, you know, everybody talks when they go into office about the pivot or the shift away from the Middle East, and and then somehow something happens. Uh, we saw it again, you know, with we see it with every so it's not a criticism. Uh, every administration, we I think this is going to be the pivot that brings uh, the U.S. back into the Middle East um, uh, issue. I hope as a positive, and I believe as a positive. Uh, but to be positive, we really have to be honest brokers between the two groups. Yeah. So let's talk about quickly the Lobel Institute, because you have such an extensive background. And, you know, I know your interest has been the Middle East in most of your career. Um, you, I mean, and I know we know amazing national security analyst for ABC News, but the um, and I don't know if this is current, the Middle East Institute and the Global Institute is set up to go in for conflict resolution. And this is, you're a co-founder of the Global Institute right now. I, I mean, can you give us a little bit about like, are you leaning more on that to handle this? Or I mean, how is that coming to play with everything you're working on these days when it comes to these conflict situations? Yeah, sure. So I am a co-founder uh, along with uh, Eric Ulrich, who is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL, 24 years, uh, leaving from the uh, JSOC component, uh, the SEAL component of JSOC. Uh, we've known each other for, and we've worked in many conflict areas together uh, during our service, uh, mine when I was in the, the agency. So Lobo itself is more of a collection of people who have uh, 
like mine in the sense that they would like to take what they've learned about conflicts, not just fighting in conflicts, um, uh, to help in them, help educate people on them, and uh, particularly when it comes to the charitable side, help groups that try to rehabilitate children who've been forced to be soldiers. Right, it's a huge problem in the world. It's uh, and it grew a double actually in 2019 alone in the Middle East. So we do that. We have people with me and Eric's type background. We also have people who work for NGOs in the past, like the White Helmets. Some of your audience might be familiar with them. They almost won the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts in Syria. We also have people who uh, have worked for the United Nations. We have professors. We have uh, not just Americans. We have uh, people from Syria, uh, people from Uganda. We have a former child soldier as advisor. And we have, so it's part of an education and we do papers uh, with the Middle East Institute, and obviously uh, our analyst at ABC News, but we also do a lot of NGOs uh, and colleges and universities. So um, there isn't like, you know, some think tanks, uh, you know, are kind of left leaning or right leaning or, you know, they're kind of associated with the political party. We are not associated at all with the political party. And we have, uh, we deliberately look for people who have diversity, uh, not just, uh, you know, from where they're from, but also uh, their perspective on things. Because conflicts don't end just because uh, the combatants. It also happens to include NGOs and diplomats and, uh, and people like that. So anyway, that's, that's what Lobo Institute is. At least for mixed uh, description of it, maybe if you talk to some of the other people, but I think they would generally agree with that. We have interns, so if, if any of your audience are interested in interns, we have quite a robust group. They do podcasts, and papers, and again, it's like a it's like a pickup basketball team in some ways, but um, a very important right. basketball team. And I, and I love because for real quick, we talked about this uh, a few days ago. Your story, you guys created the Global Institute in a conflict situation, running through a jungle, you and Eric, right? Oh yeah, he, yes, he does like telling that story. That's true. Um, we, it's a crew forest, which is like this really cool jungle. It's in Nairobi, but it's at the park, but it's, it's really cool. Um, it's where the, uh, the Mau Mau's who were insurgent group in Kenya against the British government uh, lived. But we used to, we used to talk about it there. We, we served together in Afghanistan and Somalia, and Uganda, uh, and Kenya. Uh, but that's that's where it kind of came up, um, the idea. But it's been, and it's not just us. Or there's there's quite a few other people who are involved, and there is no hierarchy. It's essentially, you know, like one big uh, long biking table or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's, everybody's got a, or it's a, it's a round table, put it that way. Um, that's the way we look at things. People have contributions that, whether they're a college student or whether they're a former child soldier. Um, they bring perspectives that I don't have. Well, I guess I have as a child, as a college student, or had, but not as a child soldier, right? Yeah. Uh, and not as a former chief of staff of an NGO that uh, grew up in in, in uh, Syria, right? So that's what we really try to bring in is uh, people with all sorts of perspectives on what can work in conflicts. And we're not Pollyannish. We don't think we can actually just go in all these places and solve them. But quite frankly, that is what keeps the instability, the, the lack of economic opportunity uh, in a lot of developing nations um, persistent is conflict. And if they can't get out of it, um, you will see young people, particularly young men, join terrorist organizations, um, not make an excuse, 
but when you have no other economic opportunities, that makes joining much more likely. So from our perspective, it is the right thing to do for the developing country, but it's also the right thing to do for the developed countries like our own, who want to see an end to violence, who don't want to have a threat to our homeland from some terrorist organization in the far fringes of the world. It is in everybody's interest uh, to try to end these conflicts. That's tremendous. It was so good having you on, Mick. I mean, the timing was beautiful. I mean, it's just so much going on. I know you're super busy, but I do appreciate you spending this time with us to explain on go over everything. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah and Joe. That was a really good discussion. I look forward, hopefully, as we do these, and you know, we already talked about it, but so your audience knows, I mean, I would view myself as an analyst that talks about the the issues, not an, not a person that's going to tell them what to think about the issues or what to think. And, and I think that's where I can be the most helpful. It's well, basically think, shaping them the way I see them and then have your audience make their own minds up. Oh, well, I mean, everybody's shaped and influenced by the media. So with Global Crisis Watch, we're here to give them kind of not the headlines, but the truth and the facts so they can make their own opinions, you know, for a safer world to live in. But it was so awesome having you on tonight. And I'm so excited to have you on again, because you're going to be our monthly um, analyst for the show now. But this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment with Global Crisis Watch and Media Mavens Podcast. Joe, thank you so much. Mick, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we'll see everybody soon. Thank you for joining us for Global Crisis Watch. This Media Mavens Podcast live monthly segment is brought to you by the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more podcasts or to learn more about our hosts and guests, please go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>